Good evening, everyone. Let's open up our Bibles to Colossians 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our, trans- our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumph over them in him. All right, it's good to see you guys. Before we get started, I'm just going to pray briefly, and then we'll uh, get into our text today. So let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would help us to understand who you are through your word. You are incredibly gracious, Lord, to us. You've provided us with so many amazing, good things. Um, And even as we get into your text today, Lord, you are going to teach us um, why we should live um, as people who can completely trust you, completely rely on you, and have inexpressible joy knowing that our walk with you um, is leading uh, to heaven. And that has absolutely nothing to do with us or what we have done, but it has everything to do with what you have revealed to us through your son Christ. So Lord, we want to pray, um, just like that old famous poem, um, that we would see you more clearly, that we would love you more dearly, and that we would follow you more nearly. So please, Lord, help us to want to do those things, Lord, because of the truths you've revealed from your scripture. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So if you haven't been there already, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2. This is just past probably halfway or so in our uh, study of Colossians. So if you're not there yet, we're going to be in verses 11 uh, to 15. But I want to start by telling you a phrase that you've probably heard of before. And that phrase is three simple words. Confidence is key. Confidence is key. I'm pretty sure most of you have heard that before, whether you heard it from a sports coach or whether it's something that your mom told you on your first day of kindergarten. The point is, it is essential to be confident. It is something that is important, that most people would agree is important for you to achieve the things that you desire to achieve. 
I think it's easy to get uh, complicated with Christianity to think, um, if we are Christians, are we supposed to be confident? Are we supposed to be people who are courageous and boldly going out with this attitude of taking on the world? Well, confidence is key for Christians, but the real question isn't a problem about confidence. The question for Christians is where that confidence is found, where that confidence is is found. I read a blog post today that actually summed up this idea pretty easily. This person uh, was talking about the concept that confidence is key, and he said this, whenever a person faces a rather difficult challenge, whether that be attempting a game-winning shot at the buzzer or trying to impress a potential employer, half the battle is simply having confidence in yourself and your abilities to carry out the required task. Confidence is the key that unlocks the door to all our greatest achievements. I think that sentence is really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is he's clearly affirming this idea that confidence is like a key that unlocks this door to which everything you desire to achieve is possible. Confidence is essential. What's interesting is that that sentence actually reveals what people really mean when they say confidence is key. There's something about confidence is key uh, when people say that phrase that they actually are usually assuming where that confidence is found. When people say confidence is key, what they normally mean is that self-confidence is key. That if you have confidence in yourself, you are really saying, I am reliable, I have the skill set or the ability to believe in my own awesomeness to tackle my challenges. What they're saying is, I trust the reliability of my own ability. Now there's something true there, or it's getting at something in this idea of you might have an awesome personality, you might be a good person. You might have practiced to achieve something you want and tried really hard to achieve it. But again, the problem is where that source of your confidence is found. The reason this is important is because one of the questions in Colossians is, can I live as a confident Christian? Is my belief system, is everything that I do as a Christ follower, is it based on truth, so true that it changes my whole attitude while I do the things I'm called to do. Paul's answer to that is an emphatic yes. You can be a confident Christian, but you must understand where your confidence is found. Now, last week, we actually learned a little bit about that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, Paul was talking about a threat to the church that would take people captive. Now, I won't rehearse for you everything we went through, but everything that Paul summed up was that what the false teachers in Colossae were teaching was not the right basis to find their confidence in. They were presenting systems called philosophies that were saying, if you have these, you can trust that you were a spiritual person, that you are saved, and that you are spiritually growing and maturing. And Paul completely disagrees with them, and he sums up his disagreement in four simple words at the end of verse 8. He says they are not according to Christ. 
As Paul is going to continue in this argument, he's actually picking up on something that's gonna be essential in the entire book of Colossians and something we've actually talked about already a little bit, which is this. Christians should walk confidently because their confidence is founded on their union with Christ. Their union with Christ. If you ever have time and want to do an interesting Bible study, go into the book of Colossians that we've already been studying and look for the two words, in him. Look for those two words and see how many times it shows up because it's so essential to walking as a confident Christian. Really, this was summed up well a couple weeks ago when we were in Colossians 2, verse 6 and verse 7, where Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And last week, Paul summed up the very similar idea of how you can be confident in Christ in verse 10, where he said, you have been filled in him. If you understand how your union with Christ completed you, then you will walk confidently as a Christian. So therefore, you can't have any Christian confidence until you grasp what Christ has done for you through your union with him. That's where we're going today. If you're looking for a one sentence or so to sum up this idea, it's this. Colossians 2, 11 to 15 will show us three incredible results of our union with Christ so that we walk confidently in Christ alone. I'll say that one more time. Colossians 2, 11 to 15 will show us three incredible results of our union with Christ so that we walk confidently in Christ alone. I'm gonna try and work through this text as simply as possible, but there's a lot of concepts in here, so we might not be able to get really deep into everything, but we'll try as best we can. The first of these incredible results that Paul is gonna talk about is this. In Christ, we have been made alive. In Christ, we have been made alive. Paul is gonna make a big argument starting in verse 11 all the way down to almost all of verse 13. And he's gonna say multiple things that's gonna to lead to this final sentence in verse 13, which says, God made us alive together with him. What he's about to say is basically gonna to lead to this idea of how you became a new person in Christ. And it starts in a very interesting way. In verse 11, it starts with Paul talking about circumcision. Now, circumcision, if you don't know what it is, it is a surgery. It is a surgery that God commanded for his people. What the surgery involved was removing part of yourself and setting it apart from you. And the idea behind it was that just as you were physically removing a part of yourself from the rest of your body, so God's people were supposed to remove themselves from the world. They were supposed to be different because they were God's people. And it was a reminder for them every time they considered this surgery that God himself had set them apart for a special relationship with him. Now, circumcision was just a part of a whole bunch of ways that they were set apart from the world. There was one commandment of circumcision that summed up all of the ways that God's people walked differently than the rest of the world. He says in Deuteronomy 10, 12, this is back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10, 12, Moses tells God's people, what does the Lord require of you 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love God, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And this surgery, this circumcision was kind of a summarization of all of those things. They were physically different and it summarized that their whole life was different from the rest of the world. Now Israel took a ton of confidence in that fact. They were very confident because they were God's people, but their confidence was misplaced. All of their confidence was in the idea that if they did this physical surgery, then they were good. That the real issue for Israel was they were confident because of what they did, even something that God told them to do. And God's main concern over this was not that their actions were set apart from the world, but that their hearts were set apart from the world. Their actions were only supposed to be different. Their actions only mattered because God was set apart in their hearts as most important. The issue was inward, not outward. And God summarizes this in Deuteronomy 10, 16 when he says, the people of God must circumcise their hearts. God was saying, set me apart in your heart as the greatest of all treasures, and if I'm going to be set apart, that is ground zero. That is the first step for you to be able to walk in all my ways. Now, the entire Old Testament was basically proving this point. Mankind finds confidence in all the wrong things, even God's people. The whole Old Testament, in one sense, is really just a tragic explanation of how God's people are going to make it all about doing stuff to be right with God instead of trusting God that he's going to make everything right in the end. And circumcision was one of these problems. They said, we're going to circumcise our ways, we're going to set our ways apart, but God is not going to have a place in our hearts. And that is why Christ is introduced in verse 11, with this idea of circumcision. What God is going to talk about is through Christ, God is going to do surgery on our hearts and fix our hearts. Colossians 2.11 says, in him, which is Christ, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Obviously in a physical circumcision, you need a physical hands to be able to do that. But in this circumcision, in this spiritual surgery upon your heart, there is no need for hands. Christ is going to go in and supernaturally change your heart to do something different. And he explains in verse 11, what is the different thing Christ will do? In Colossians 2.11, he continues, he says, this spiritual circumcision will put off the body of the flesh. Christ has come into our hearts and he has removed the flesh. The flesh is basically a summary of all that makes a human spiritually dead. The Old Testament was proving that mankind by themselves can't figure out this problem of the heart, which means they can't figure out this thing of worshiping God truly. So what is happening is we have a picture of Christ as a surgeon. He is coming in and he has put us on the operating table and he is going to cut into us and he's going to go into our hearts and he's going to supernaturally fix our spiritual problem, which is that we have dead hearts that don't desire God. 
Christ is gonna go in and solve that problem. And the way he's gonna solve that problem is by saying this. Since you are united with Christ, what has happened to Christ on the cross has happened spiritually to you. The method that we are supernaturally changed is through everything that happened to Christ on the cross is now applied to our spiritual lives. Let's look at this specifically. The first thing that Christ did that had an effect on us was that Christ was buried in baptism and he was raised with him through faith by the powerful working of God. Verse 12 says that Christ was buried and raised and therefore we were buried and raised. Here's the point. Christ physically died and he was buried. That means he was permanently, review, uh, permanently removed from the world. Now in the same sense that Christ died and was buried, our old spiritual lives have also died and they were also buried. Our old spiritual lives that did not desire Christ have been permanently removed from us. And in the same way that Christ was buried, which proved he was really dead, our old selves too are permanently and definitely dead. When Christ our surgeon was finished, he took our hearts out of our chests, he left the operating room, he put our heart in a casket, and he buried it in an unmarked grave. It is impossible to find the dead spiritual person that you used to be if you're united in Christ. Paul also adds in verse 12 a very interesting word. He says, we were buried with him in baptism. I think when we see the word baptism, we think about this idea of water baptism. But he's not actually talking about water baptism. What he's talking about is the word baptized means immersed. It's like when the water is all around you. You are a separate person from the water, but you're immersed in it. You're very much in it. And that's supposed to be a picture of how united with Christ you are. You are so united with Christ that when he physically died, he was verifying that you are definitely spiritually dead from your old self in him. But of course, Christ didn't just leave you dead on the operating table. He didn't just take out your heart and that was the end of it. He also remade you and gave you new life because he gave you a new heart. Paul continues that idea in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, we were also raised with Christ through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. After Christ buried our old hearts, he went back into the operating room, he took a key, and he entered a room that was full of hearts that had spiritual life. And he took one of those hearts, came, and put it within us. Now, not only are we alive, but we are alive in, with the right heart. We are alive in such a way that we desire the right things. And in that way, in Colossians 2.13, Paul summarizes all of those things he talked about in verse 11 and 12. Paul says in verse 13, you were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made you alive together with him. In the same way that Christ died, was buried, and was raised to new life, you have died to your old former way of life, you have been buried with Christ, and the same power that raised Christ from the dead has raised you to new spiritual 
life. Why does that matter? The reason it matters is because it is a basic truth that you can draw all of your confidence from when you are trying to spiritually grow. If you are going to have confidence, you need to be able to found it in the right place. And just like Israel, we have so many problems with being confident in our Christian lives because of what we do. We do good things, we have good Bible reading plans, we attend church, and so often we can accidentally make it all about that and draw all our confidence and spiritual growth from that. The other problem, and I think this is something I've observed in some of you guys, is the opposite. When we don't do things that we know are good, when we don't do things that we think are spiritually mature, we actually lose confidence. And all of our confidence gets lost in the exact opposite way. I miss church one Sunday, and people are bugging me about it. Maybe I'm not spiritual. I'm having a hard time trying to understand and read my Bible daily. Maybe I'm not spiritual. And all sorts of those things are signs. But the problem is, when we think about being a new creation in Christ, we so often think it just makes us a perfect Christian. And we can lose so much confidence in Christ when we go out to the world and we still see the remainder of sinful desires. You can go into your school and you can want to be like other people or be envious of other people. You can want to be a good athlete like someone else is. You can want someone else's grades more than you want their well-being. You can want someone's boyfriend or girlfriend. You can want the friends that they have and they get to spend time with. Sometimes you even want their confidence. I just wanna have their personality. I just want to be an extrovert or an introvert like they are. I don't know why you'd wanna be specifically, but most people, either way, whatever they have that makes them likable, that's what I want. And when you recognize that that isn't important or you recognize that that is a desire that seems to be different or more important in your life than Christ, you can think my whole spiritual life is still dead. But that is not supposed to be ground zero. The beginning of you recognizing that Christ has performed spiritual surgery on you is not about you, it's about Christ and being confident that what happened to Christ happened. Look at verse 13, actually look at verse 12 specifically. It says that we've been buried with him in baptism and we are also raised with him through faith. The first sign of your circumcision is your belief, but what do you believe in? Verse 12, you believe in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. Christ has made you spiritually alive by letting you see and believe that Christ really rose again. If you believe that Christ died, he was buried and resurrected, then you are believing something you could never believe as a spiritually dead person. You are at ground zero, you do have that first step. Everything comes down to believing that Christ has done a good work on the cross. If you believe that, then you simply follow the breadcrumbs from there and see how that can radically change your life. If Christ died, then I can be confident that my old sinful desires died. Yes, they show up again, but they don't need to dominate my whole life. I can now say no to them. 
I used to not be able to say no to them. They dominated everything that I do, but now in Christ, they can die because Christ has died. Even greater than that, I know that Christ has risen again. And if Christ has risen again, so has he brought up and resurrected new good and godly desires in my heart. If Christ is alive, then I can trust that he can bring me to spiritual life and he can make me for the first time desire the right things. Your spiritual growth does not start with you trying to be perfect. It starts with you trusting that Christ was perfect and he will provide a path that will deal with everything you need to do to be right with Christ. And that's where he goes to the second thing because the second thing that he talks about is that in Christ, we have been forgiven. In Christ, we have been forgiven. That's gonna pick up from where we stopped in verse 13 and it's gonna go all the way to the end of verse 14. Now, I wanna start this by going back to a vague reference that Pastor Josh made on Sunday and he made a reference to a movie. I'm just gonna come out and say it. Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man movie. I think I always say it wrong. I think it's No Way Home, right? Luke's like, yeah. Spider-Man No Way Home. I'm gonna give you a spoiler. I trust that you have all seen it or not. It's not a massive spoiler, but it's a spoiler. In the new Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man is going to solve all of the problems of all of these new villains who have shown up from new places. And his solution to the problem with these villains is stab them with science. We're gonna make science, we're gonna stab them with science, and they're gonna change. And then what's gonna happen is when we send them back to their own homes, everyone's gonna be like, okay, they're different, this is great. No more new problems. If you think about that for a sec, think about the implications of that. Can you imagine if a villain came from in, back into your world, he used to be a bad guy, comes back, now he's a good guy, he's like, look, I've changed. My first response would be, that's great. You killed a lot of people. You still need to go to jail. That's a thing. And it's the exact same with our spiritual lives. It is an amazing and radical truth to know that God has transformed your heart, but you still sinned. You still committed sins against God, and if God is a holy judge, he must still punish your sins. And we've been looking on Sunday morning about this idea of justification by faith because you need to know that God solved your problems and he was still just. He still punished sin, but not upon you. And that's really what Paul gets at in this next idea. And again, he gives us all these pictures to paint an illustration for us. The way he starts that is there's two key words that kind of open the door to this picture, and it's this. He says, the record of her debt has been canceled that stood against it, us, with its legal demands. Record of debt and legal demands. This idea is one of a courtroom. What we've been invited into is the courtroom that every single sinner is going to walk into either on the Lord's day that is coming or once you have died and you stand before God, the judge. The picture really here is you walking into the courtroom on that day and you sit down, down at the defense table. Now, as you sit down, you wait for the prosecution. That's the group that is going to accuse you, the group that is against you, to put the evidence that you should be punished for something you did. And when you look at the door, the prosecution walks in, and it is Satan. It is the devil. 
And on his side, filling out the groups behind him is all of the armies of hell. They are all there to prosecute against you. God calls order in the court as the judge, and Satan, the prosecutor, approaches the bench and addresses the crowd and specifically addresses God. And he says this mockingly, God, holy judge of the universe, I have not come here today to tell you what I want. I came here to remind you of what you demand. You have a legal demand upon this person, don't you? You have an obligation to punish sin, don't you? If you are a good God, you must punish this person for his sin, and I have the evidence of it. I have a list here that this person has automatically signed the very day they were born. The very day they were born, they bore your image to represent you perfectly, and they admitted, even in their existence, that you created them. And every time they did not, that was a debt you were owed. I have here a record of debt, and it is filled with every action, intention, and thought that was not in perfect obedience to your perfection. I have that record here. And therefore, it proves that you must judge this man. I've come to bring it to you to demonstrate that this person, according to your holiness, must be punished in hell for their sins for eternity. Imagine you understanding that case before you in court. Understand all of the worries and anxiety and ultimate terror that would be on you as you waited for the judge to say guilty. This is the mind-blowing question of the gospel. Could you sit in that courtroom with confidence? Could you sit in that courtroom thinking there might be a way that my punishment can be served, but not upon me? Paul says they're 100% is. As you wait for that guilty penalty, Jesus Christ stands beside you as your defense lawyer. And he asks the question to Satan, your prosecutor. Can you please produce this record of debt? Can you show us the sins of this person in writing? Satan opens his briefcase and finds nothing. He looks around on his table frantically looking for the record of debt that shows the evidences against you and finds absolutely nothing. Why can he not find it? Christ tells us because when he died on the cross, he did not only remove your sinful nature from you, he also executed permanently your record of debt. All of the sins that had to be punished on you, all of the sins that demanded a life sentence from you were taken by Christ on the cross and permanently destroyed on the cross. And if you want the proof, you can see the cross in the Gospels. And Paul tells us, if you go there, you will see your record of debt permanently nailed there. And it is never coming down. Only God could create such a perfect system, a perfect situation that judgment might be served, that God would still be holy, yet you would be, verse 14, forgiven. That you would be forgiven of all your trespasses. Again, why is this amazing? 
The first obvious reality is that you can go to that courtroom, your biggest problem in the world, and you can be confident there. That in itself is an amazing confidence. But how can you be confident in life right now? The reality for the Christian is you are still walking in a world where you know the holiness of God and you are reminded of the sin that a holy God must punish. And there are many things in your life that you can lose confidence about because of this. I think every single one of us here has a fear of failure. Every single one of us has a fear of failure. Imagine the look on your face when you receive the letter from the university that you're trying to get into. And you see the first line say, after careful consideration, we are sorry to inform you that we are unable to offer you a place at this institution. Imagine reading the list of names of people who got onto your sports team, and no matter how many times you go through the list, you are not a name on that list. Imagine sitting in your boss's office waiting for the promotion you've been working for, and they tell you, I'm sorry, you're just not the right fit. Fear of failure is so apparent in our world, and it motivates so many things that we do. Fear of failure can even be spiritual, and the proof of that is it is the reason why Colossian Christians were being tempted to work out their own salvation and to work out their own sanctification. The Colossian heresy was that you could work off your debt that you could find confidence, but not in Christ, you would have to find confidence by working for it. And that is the only way you could avoid failing in the end. Go back to the courtroom for a sec. How insane would it be as Jesus explains how he nailed your debt to the cross, that you would go back to the cross, you would take it off and say, before I put it back there, I'm gonna check off a couple of these myself. That is what happens when Christians try to prove their spiritual worth to God by working for it. You are called to grow in Christ, but no matter how mature you get, you will never, ever be fit for the kingdom of God. That's why Christ died for you. So that as you would spiritually grow in enjoyment over the reality of the cross, you might still, no matter how imperfect you are, go to the courtroom and you are completely settled of all debts by Christ, all of them forgiven. That changes the way you walk because all the good you do is resting in the reality that I'm not earning my salvation. I'm working out my thankfulness. I'm desiring other people would find salvation. I'm working to grow the church into a greater knowledge of the glory of Christ but I'm not motivated to be right with Christ. I am already right with Christ because Christ has forgiven all my trespasses. You can have supreme confidence in your walk as a Christian and that confidence comes from being alive in Christ to walk forward to his glory and knowing that when you arrive there, you are forgiven of all your sins. But there's a third one. It's what Paul ends with in verse 15. The last amazing result of union with Christ is this, that we have seen his victory. In verse 15, we have seen his victory. 
Colossians 2.15 says that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. It's funny, as we've been talking about all of these things that union with Christ gives to us, in verse 15, we're not even there. In verse 15, Christians are not present. There's a triumph of Christ that we apparently are not at, but that is not because we don't see the victory. Paul is showing us the victory, but it's only talking about what Christ has done to just remind us for a sec that this is all about Christ. This is all about what Christ has done on the cross. What has he done? Verse 15, he has disarmed. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. The threat of the unseen enemy has been eternally neutralized. As Christians were walking through their lives, the reminder of their record of debt was like small knives stabbing them, plunging into their hearts every single day. But those weapons, those knives being used against us have been permanently removed from the hands of the enemy. There is nothing to threaten you anymore because Christ through the cross has removed all of those weapons. Whose weapons has he removed? The rulers and authorities. We've talked about this briefly before as it's come up in Colossians 1.16 and 2.8. This is not just talking about government authorities or emperors or things like that. This is talking about spiritual forces, whether it's spiritual lies or spiritual systems that are not true or whether there are some kind of supernatural forces in the world. Paul was trying to remind Christians that any force behind it is demonic. It is totally outside of Christ. And on that last judgment day, those rulers and authorities, to steal a reference, have been outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, and outplanned. Those spiritual enemies are completely without resource. They have nothing against you because Christ has defeated them. Actually, even worse than that, verse 15 says, they have embarrassed them. Christ has put them to open shame. The reality of your completeness in Christ is so amazing for you that it is an embarrassing proof that the enemy is powerless. They are so infinitely below Christ in their ability to influence you now because Christ has completed you. This is really the picture that Paul is painting that any person in the Roman Empire would have totally understood. When a Roman emperor went to war, and when a Roman emperor had a victory in war, he wouldn't just let his enemy be, he wouldn't just kill everyone. He would round up the survivors, and he would take them back to the capital city, and he would parade them through the streets. They would be tied up in this parade, they would be stripped, naked, beaten, torn, and they would suffer even more than that, the mockery of the Roman citizens and the emperor would be at the front, and every Roman citizen who saw this parade would see the captive enemy defeated, they would see the Roman emperor, and they would say, wow, we live under the most powerful force in the world. That is the picture of Christ defeating sin and any spiritual force that could threaten you with captivity. That is the victory. And Paul adds that verse as an amazing cherry on top to say, you are complete in Christ. There is absolutely nothing that could take you away. 
The confidence you have as a believer is that you have been invited to the winning team. But the reminder of that is that the win is guaranteed and it has nothing to do with how well you played. It has nothing to do with your performance ability, even though as you were on this team, you grew and grew and you seemed to make contribution after contribution. But the reminder is the win happened because of the captain. Christ did everything. No matter how much you worked, no matter how much you matured, it's never going to be enough. But since you've been invited and you got to be on the team when the win happened, because of that, you can be confident as you play until the end of the game and the celebration begins. That is the picture of the Christian life. This is what we'll close with. Walking down the path of the Christian is difficult. As you walk towards that final day, there is suffering and there is sin. There are circumstances against you and there is sin that comes up within you. But Christ's response to this is to explain in detail, just like he says in John 16, 33, take heart for I have overcome the world. You might slip and you might slide, but you have no need to worry about falling off the road if all of your confidence is found in Christ. And Paul has elaborated on that idea so you can be confident in Christ. So that everything you do, you know where you're headed. No matter what comes up in front of you, no matter how much guilt you are suffering from, every single thing that separated you from God has been settled in Christ because of his love and grace for you. That union with Christ and everything that came with it because of what Christ has done on the cross, that is going to be this amazing reality that hovers above the rest of Colossians. And even though we're going to repeat it and even though we're going to expand on it, the reality for you to today is simple. Accept that reality. The God of the universe commands you to rest in Christ. The God of the universe has revealed to you that all your debts have been settled. If you do not know Christ, if you are worried that you could never start liking the right things, all of that is settled by Christ. Since Christ has died and rose again, he can destroy your sinful desires and he can replace himself as the ultimate desire of your heart. He can do that because he has done that already on the cross. If you are worried that you have done too many sins, Christ is constantly reminding his people he has forgiven you. You are right in him. You are making it to the end with me. And Christ has shown you the victory. He's shown you that spiritually, Every force in the universe knows that Christ already won. The enemy is trying to take as many captives as he can, knowing that they are all heading towards eternal destruction. But for us who are in Christ, we are celebrating his victory. No matter what happens in this life, no matter how many temptations come, we are celebrating the fact that we are absolutely victorious because of Christ. Take confidence in that and ask yourself how radically this could transform my life 
if I would only believe that Christ is enough. Let's pray. Father, you are good and you do good. You are eternally wise. You are the good judge who punishes all sin and we are so finite, unwise, and sinful. Yet by your love and by your grace, you have redeemed us perfectly. You have done everything we needed to be right with you. Let us never, ever wander to any other path. Let all of our love, let all of our actions have behind them the confidence that I am united with Christ and therefore I am right with you. God, let us always be motivated by the knowledge that you love us and have done all of this for us. You have died and were buried and have been raised to resurrection life so that we might live in you, that we might walk in you, and that we might eternally live with you. Let us understand the facts of the gospel, even if we are already saved, so that we would always be motivated by the right intentions. And let us earnestly desire, for those of us who know this gospel, let us earnestly desire to share it with others and to invite them into your kingdom by demonstrating what a Christ-like, transformed life looks like. And we pray that you would open doors for the gospel as we put our confidence in you. And we trust you to complete that good work in us because you have already completed it on the cross. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. I have uh, failed to give you guys questions the last couple weeks. So I have two brief questions uh, for you um, that I hope you guys can talk about. Basically, what we talked about tonight is that you can have confidence if you understand the gospel. If your life as a Christian recognizes that the gospel is always relevant, it will always transform you, it will grow you in spiritual life. If all your confidence is in Christ and what he has done, then you can walk confidently. That's the point today. So I just have two questions so that you guys can start asking yourself uh, particulars about how this can actually affect uh, your life. Question number one, where can a Christian find confidence? Where can a Christian find confidence? Confidence is key, but where can you find your confidence? That's question one. Question number two, how can a Christ-centered confidence specifically change your life? How can a Christ-centered confidence specifically change your life? Think about the things you do, think about the motivations behind the things you do, and ask yourself, if I trust Christ and can be confident in him, what would change? How would I behave differently here? How would I think differently there? Think specifically about it, and you'll start to see the really amazing ways that Christ is working in your life. So I think you guys know where you're going for a small group, so I'll let you guys go. And as always, you're always welcome to come and ask me follow-up questions as well. Thanks, guys.